I'm convinced that at the center of every individual life and indeed the life of entire communities and nations, there rages a battle, a fundamental conflict. Some people have defined it as a contest between the voice of the one who says, I am God, and the voice within us that says, no thanks, I'd rather play that role. I'd rather be king. Others see it as the conflict between the impulse to live a life that is in service to God-defined goals versus that part of us that wants to live our lives according to self-defined goals. I tend to think of it as simply the conflict between the way of humility on the one hand versus the way of pride on the other hand. This is a battle that goes way, way back. We know from the opening chapters of the book of Genesis that this was the fundamental issue that the first human beings confronted in Eden. When surrounded by so much plenty, they saw a tree that had a fence around it and decided that even though they really did not need this for food, that they wanted that thing because the enemy had declared to them that if they had it, they could be God. They could be as God. I am convinced that upon the outcome of this battle between pride and humility hangs the character of every individual life and of the societies that we uh, together make up. And nowhere, I think, is that more evident than the story that we're going to explore together today. If you're just joining us, the setting for this particular story is the year 539 BC. The site is the ancient city of Babylon, which was the glorious capital of one of the most amazingly sophisticated, impressive, and influential societies ever to uh, give rise upon the face of this earth. And as chapter 5 is opening up, a coalition of the Persian and the Median armies is amassing around the walls of the capital city of Babylon, zealously trying to find a way in. And the ominous threat that lies outside those walls provides a strange counterpoint to the celebration that's taking place inside of those walls. And if you were with us last week, then you know that King Belshazzar of Babylon had decided to throw a massive banquet feast for a thousand of his nobles. The very fact that he is doing this, while no doubt the rest of the population is, is somewhat nervously noticing what's happening outside of the walls, the fact that he goes forward with this kind of a lavish celebration suggests something of the character of this particular man and indeed of the culture that he was leading. Babylon was a nation that had faced dozens and dozens of challenges over the years. It had faced all sorts of conflicts, but each time it had just grown stronger in the wisdom and the uh, capacities, the wealth of this world, and in the process of those battles had grown very, very confident in themselves and therefore had been losing the most important contest of all in the fight between the way of humility on the one side and pride on the other side, humility was taking a terrible beating in Babylon. How do you spot somebody who was losing that contest? What are the signs that somebody is losing the battle between humility and pride? Well, I want to suggest to you today that there are three signs worth noting 
all of which show up in the story of King Belshazzar of Babylon and his encounter with the God of heaven. The first of these signs is that a prideful person will tend to use sacred things for selfish purposes. Uh, the humble person will see that all of life, every vessel that has been put in our hands in life, our money, our power, our sexuality, our speech, our position, our talents, you name it, all of these things are sacred vessels that God has given us to be used according to his priorities and purposes. The humble person kind of comes at life with that orientation. They may slip off, they may lose their way sometimes, but they keep returning to that fundamental sense that they hold all things in stewardship for the glory of God. Somebody in whom pride is winning the battle will forget that, will tend to live with a different point of view. These these vessels, after they've been in a prideful person's storehouse for quite a few years, that person will tend to look at these things as, as if he owns these things, as if they're there for mainly for his amusement. In fact, a prideful person will be somewhat irritated if somebody suggested that there was some kind of obligation or responsibility to use those particular vessels uh, in a manner different than she or he would choose. That's probably why no person in the room at Belshazzar's feast that day raised any kind of objection when the king ordered that the sacred vessels that had been stolen from the temple in Jerusalem now be passed around as toasting goblets with which to, and I quote, praise the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In other words, these vessels were now to be used to exalt the icons of human authority and achievement, the exact opposite of what those vessels were intended for. The irony was just stunning in that moment as we touched on last week. It was then, the scriptures say, that a disembodied hand began writing a message upon the wall of the banquet hall near the lampstand where everybody could see it. This is how the great artist Rembrandt pictures the scene in memorable and visible terms. And that's where we were left hanging last week, wondering what the message was that made King Belshazzar's uh, legs go weak, the scripture says, and his knees start knocking together. What exactly did the message say to him? Well, I'm very glad that you clicked on this episode because you're going to find out now. We're going to finish that story. The hand wrote four words on the wall in the Aramaic language. Now, Aramaic was the common language of the ancient Middle East. People spoke lots of different tongues. Everybody knew Aramaic. When you wanted to get a message across, in a way that you would be absolutely sure that everybody would understand it, you would write the message or speak the message in Aramaic. The only challenge with Aramaic is that when it is written down, only the consonants of the word are described. Uh, only the consonants. It works like those vanity license plates that you see on so many cars today. And, and if you see, for example, the license plate on the back of my car, it looks like this. You know from the context what the word means, don't you? 
you know that you supply automatically the correct consonants. You know that the word is pester because that's what I do to you every weekend. <laughs> so in similar fashion, those who were looking upon the, the consonants that were written on the wall there in Belshazzar's chamber would have seen the consonants and naturally supply the most common vowels that were used with those consonants. By doing that, the words would have been read by many people as mina, mina, tequil, eupharsin. Mina, mina, tequil, eupharsin, which in rough translation meant 100 bucks, 100 bucks, 20 bucks, a dollar. 100 bucks, 100 bucks, 20 bucks, a dollar. Now, on one level, you just have to admire God's sense of humor on this. Seriously. There is like a brilliant irony in, in this particular choice of consonants. Because if you were trying to get the attention of a guy who is very much wrapped up in his own power and wealth, what better way than letting money talk? Right? What better way? And boy, did Belshazzar believe in money and all that it could get him, as the very next thing he does shows us. Understandably, he's shaken up by the, 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 this bizarre sign of the disembodied hand writing on the wall, and the king immediately says, he, he basically calls in his, um, all of his advisors, as, as the kings are wont to do in certain circumstances like this, and he basically says, and I'm, I'm translating here, okay, whoever can tell me what this message means wins the jackpot. They get an Armani suit, they get a Rolex, I'll make him executive VP. He doesn't put it in exactly those terms, but you can read the actual terms in chapter five, and this is essentially the sensibility here. Uh, that's a rough and but fair translation. More importantly, however, can you see what this response tells us about the man, about how he's doing in this contest between humility and pride? I have some sense, you probably too, of how somebody who, in whom humility is the dominating influence uh, would tend to respond to a very disturbing event and moment like this. Uh, I talk to people like this a lot. You probably do as well. When, when somebody has their spouse tell them that the marriage is over, or when um, their kids are just raging out of control and everything they've tried just hasn't seemed to work, when the doctor's news is bad or the quarterly report is terrible, or when they've fallen off the wagon in life or they're into some kind of a dangerous relationship or they're behind in their mortgage, the humble people that I know and that you probably know too frequently turn to God or to somebody else for help. In this kind of a moment, they, they, they are driven to their knees, they, they, they speak from some place within them in some kind of tone of meekness that says, wow, I am in serious trouble here. I am way out of my depth. I really don't know what to do here. Would you help me? Would somebody please be willing to help me? When confronted with crisis, humility confesses need. Okay, let's remember that. When, when confronted with tremendous adversity and challenge and threat, humility has this way of just getting honest about need. And even though that honesty means vulnerability, humility dares to handle problems by reaching up or by reaching out. 
pride doesn't do that. Pride does not do that. And that's a second sign somebody is losing the battle. A prideful person tends to confront crisis by trying to control their way out of it. By trying to control their way out of it. Now, there's a difference between taking responsibility. I think we are called in the face of crisis to own responsibility. But there's a difference between responsibility and control. And I think we sense that. There is that difference. Crises for the prideful person are not opportunities for me to look more deeply at myself or to awaken my sense of dependency upon my relationships. Crises are opportunities for me to manage my resources even more skillfully. If a prideful person has to get help from somebody else, she won't beseech somebody else for it. She'll just go out and try and buy it. Just go out and buy it. Pride doesn't want to be beholden to somebody else. Pride doesn't want to appear needy. Pride doesn't want to admit that he is not a self-sufficient, self-made being able uh, to take care of all these things on their own. And maybe that is that very quality that also accounts for one additional sign that you'll often see. A prideful person will rarely admit when she or he has been wrong. They will rarely admit boy, I, I was really wrong here. And that is where we can learn something very important from the story of Belshazzar, I think. The Bible says that after all of his hired wise men were brought in and were unsuccessful in interpreting the message on that particular wall, I mean, just uh, reading 100 bucks, 100 bucks, 20 bucks, a dollar, didn't really give the guy much of a clue, did it, as to what in the world he was meant to do with all of this. Uh, when the others could not help in any way, the queen mother reminded the king that he actually had on his staff a much better resource in the crisis interpretation department that he should avail himself of, that he should use as part of his control response to this moment of crisis. And so at this point, God's servant Daniel is mustered in. He's called in. And Daniel at this point is about 80 years old, about my age, and he's... And he's just, he he's just walks in as he's come into this kind of a context over many now generations of leadership in Babylon. And he is asked to tell his interpretation of the message. And, and, and he proceeds to remind the king of the lesson that, that God taught his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, a lesson that it is God who makes kings, nations, and individuals not the other way around. And he just walks it through. He reminds uh, Belshazzar here of the hard lessons that Nebuchadnezzar learned that, that God is the kingmaker, kings aren't the Godmaker. Um, Daniel goes on to tell the king what the words then really, truly mean. Everybody had the consonants all right, but the vowels all wrong. The correct translation involves inserting the vowels that form the passive participle of those words. And when that is done, the words now no longer describe various denominations of money, but they take on a much more sober meaning. 
To put it simply, the message now says, uh, instead of mina, mina, tequil, you farsen, the, the message now says, mene, mene, tekel, uh, parson, or some translations put it, peres, which means, literally, numbered, measured, divided. Numbered, measured, numbered, numbered, measured, divided. Literally, says Daniel to Belshazzar, your days are numbered, your character has been measured and found hopelessly lightweight, and the impenetrable walls of your empire have been divided as they literally would be before the night was over by a coalition of the Medes and the Persians. German pastor and theologian Helmut Thielicke once observed that it is always much easier to become religious after the second heart attack. I find those words sobering. I've had one of those heart attacks. Uh, it is amazing how many people do not change in response to their own crisis. Even when the crises are repeated, even when those crises have been patterned in their family's life before them, as it was in Belshazzar's life, it's amazing how many people don't read the tea leaves, don't take the warning seriously enough when it has graciously been given. Belshazzar had not learned from what happened to his grandfather. Remember, he went, uh, Nebuchadnezzar went crazy. He literally had a complete nervous, God completely cut down the tree of Nebuchadnezzar's life. And Belshazzar had not uh, understood the, in, the meaning of this. And so even after Daniel, right here, has, has clearly told him of the consequences of his pridefulness that God was about to severely judge him, Belshazzar still does not repent. He doesn't do anything more than just try and pay Daniel for his services. Here's the suit. Here's the Rolex. Here's the executive VP position. He still doesn't change. Let me say it again. There are three clear signs when someone is losing the battle between humility and pride. The prideful person will tend to use sacred things for selfish purposes. He or she will try to control their way out of crises. And even when confronted by hard truth, such a person will rarely, if ever, admit that she or he has been dead wrong. And dead, in this case, is the right word. For this story and the vast weight of Scripture suggests that there are actually two clear consequences to losing, finally, the battle between humility and pride. And the first consequence of pride is death. It's the loss of life. Think about this. The wages of sin, the Scriptures say, is death. Pride is the first of the deadly sins. Thus the Bible says that that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. You know how that happened. You know the story of how that actually happened. The scripture doesn't give us this detail, but we know from extra biblical documents how those events transpired. Belshazzar went to bed that night. 
He went to bed, no doubt, a little ruffled from the events of the day and the encounter he had with the hand on the wall and the noise going on outside of the walls of the city, but he's still very much in control. As I said last week, he had these impregnable walls to protect him. He had all of the food inside of the walls to outlast any siege. He had all the water he needed from the Euphrates River that ran under the walls and gates of this city. But while Belshazzar snored, the Persians and the Median armies did something that the Babylonians never anticipated even in the realm of possibility. Would you like to know what they did? They dug a huge channel and diverted the course of the Euphrates River. And they walked on a dry riverbed underneath the walls of Babylon. And they slaughtered Belshazzar in his sleep. The wages of sin is death. Thankfully, God does not exact such a penalty from many of us in this life. Uh, He keeps giving to us chance after chance. He keeps inviting us, challenging us, urging us, coaxing us, summoning us to turn our lives over to him, to come back to him, to seek his face. He will go to remarkable lengths. He will take on even human form. He will lay his own life out on a cross to reach us. He is the good shepherd who goes after the one. He is the patient, patient God. But the New Testament is really clear about this. There is going to come a day when for every one of us, our days are numbered, our character is measured, and we are divided from all of our earthly securities, from everything we used to give us a sense of our own permanent significance, our own capacity to control things. And, and the day will come when the river of this life, as we have known it, dries up, just dries up. It may happen very suddenly. It may happen very slowly. But the New Testament teaches that the only ones who will still be living in heaven after that day will be those who have humbly surrendered their lives to God who have humbly given themselves over to God. Jesus said, whoever would save his life must deny himself and follow after me. For what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world, to build an entire Babylon, and yet lose his soul? What can a person give to get back his or her soul? I pray that you have humbly surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I hope you have gotten off the throne. I hope and pray that if you have not, today's the day you step off the throne. You say, Lord, come sit here. I will take my instructions from you. I pray that you will Make that turn 
that is the, the secret to abundant and eternal life. But there is one last reason to make humility your aim. And if it's not the thought of the afterlife that, that is sufficient for you in this respect, then, then think about this other reason as well. The last verse of Daniel chapter 5 says that that very night, I quote, Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. Daniel 5 verse 31. But a better and even more literal translation of the text is, Darius the Mede received the kingdom. God gave Darius the kingdom that could have been Belshazzar's. I said that the first consequence of sin is the loss of life. The second consequence of pride is the loss of the opportunity, the wonderful opportunity to be an ultimate influencer in the things of God in our time. This is the joy of life, the chance to be used of God as a powerful influence for good in this world. God wants us to be stewards of his kingdom. He's called you and me into the life of his kingdom. He's given us these remarkable vessels that we have in our hands. He wants to establish his kingdom's character in us and through us, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and in all of our circles of influence. But that cannot happen. He cannot do what he wants in us and through us if we're ruled by pride if pride is really winning the battle, if we cannot humble ourselves, if we cannot truly give the throne to him, then God will find a Darius who will. God does not need us. He can do his work through others if he so chooses. That's why I want to think with you today and I want to think afresh for myself about uh, at least a few strategies for, for, for helping us win the battle for our soul. And if you're anything like me, you're going to need some remedial work in this area. <laughs> I know I need a lot of remedial work in this area. So let me just invite us to think about ways of letting humility go, grow up in us. And, and, and I want to invite us, first of all, just to, to think first about pushing beyond even what we usually think of as humility. When we think of humility, uh, sometimes we think of it as the capacity to tolerate criticism. I want to suggest to you that the biblical vision of humility involves being so passionately committed to pursuing righteousness that we actively invite uh, critique from other people. That we actively welcome feedback from other people. That's always a stretch for me, personally, because I, I, my natural instinct is to actively invite affirmation from other people. How do I do? How'd you like that? Was that okay? And usually, no matter what they say, in response to that, I, I feel like they maybe haven't said quite enough. There might have been some more glowing adjectives that could have been applied to my performance there. Let's model our way of being on the response of the psalmist instead. King David had a battle with pride. And he learned to actually invite critique from others. 
as, as a way of dealing with that pride in his own life. He says in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Think about trying this this week. Find somebody that you can trust, somebody who knows you, and ask them, are there any sacred vessels I may be misusing? Is there anything about the way you see me handling my person, my resources in a way that, that may not square up with the faith that I profess, with the principles of Jesus and the life of the kingdom? Any place where you see me putting my confidence in the wrong things, invite that response, that critique from others. Secondly, take a page out of the actor Charlton Heston's book. You're all too young to remember Charlton Heston, but he was a very famous Hollywood actor. He played the part of Moses uh, in uh, the famous movie, The Ten Commandments. And, and uh, Heston once said that the three most important words in a marriage are, I was wrong. I was wrong. You see why that is true in not just marriage, but in all of our relationships. There's just this huge world of difference between saying, I am sorry, and I am wrong. When I say I'm sorry to somebody, it is often a dangerously false kind of humility. It often really means, I'm sorry you felt hurt. I'm sorry you misunderstood me. I I'm really sorry that you're giving me grief. <laughs> Subtext which I don't think I really deserve. But it is very hard for me to say, I was wrong and not crush pride beneath that bended knee. So, actively invite critique from others. Say, I was wrong, more often. And thirdly, make humble service of somebody else your aim. Make humble service of someone else your aim. I do not mean simply serving people that you naturally care about. Although that's good too, don't stop doing that. I'm just suggesting that if we wanna grow in this humility area, then serve people um, who you actually struggle to care about. Jesus once said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you for even sinners do the same? It's not gonna stretch you much in the way of discipleship, says Jesus, just to serve people you like that you feel like serving. No, try being humble the way Daniel was in, in uh, Belshazzar's Babylon, in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Think how many decades that guy just kept serving his enemies. The people that had ripped out his life and taken him to this foreign land and, and, and so trifled with the things of God. Think how often Daniel did that. Think how Jesus models servanthood even towards his enemies. They're hanging him on the cross. They're jeering his agony. He still has a heart of service. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. He still has a heart of service. Pray for those who persecute you, says Jesus. Do good to those who do harm to you. 
Commit yourself in the next few days, is what I'm saying, to serving an enemy. Strategy three. Commit yourself. Maybe you don't have an enemy. Commit yourself to just an obnoxious person then. Uh, Find somebody that's difficult to like and serve them in some way. Finally, don't merely bow your head and blush when you're given accolades. Uh, don't, don't just say, aw shucks, aw uh, oh, shucks, <laughs> when you're given accolades. Um, instead, um, go a step further. This is one of the striking things about Daniel's way of being in ancient Babylon. Uh, he, every time he, he does something impressive, uh, you know, the king of Babylon is, rallies around him and wants to do more for Babylon and, or Daniel and tells him what an amazing guy he is. He heaps praises and rewards uh, onto Daniel for his prophetic work, but each and every one of those instances, Daniel basically gives glory to God. So give glory to God. Let's do that together. When somebody praises us, Let's lift our heads, let's smile and say, thank you for saying that. It feels great to hear, but believe me, the glory is all God's. (laughs) This wouldn't have happened without him, without the grace he's given, without the capacities and gifts that he's provided. He deserves the glory. It's such a privilege and such a pleasure to be used as a vessel for the glory of the king. It is, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Indeed, it is. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, You who are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You who are the, not just the resource that we plug in and out of, but the source of every molecule, every breath, every external object we touch. We give you the glory. We give you the throne of our lives. We thank you for the honor and privilege that it is to be used for your purposes. So help us today to grow in humility and to die to pride for the sake and after the model of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.